Konnichiwa, this is Erica. Hey everyone, this is Freen, and we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. Listening to Super Smash Hose. Today we're joined by Yume, the founder and editor in chief of BGU. Hi! Hi, Yume. We're so excited to have you on. Before we start, did you want to just let everyone know what your pronouns are? I use she, her pronouns, and I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So, before we start, as Erica mentioned, you're the founder and editor in chief of BGU. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what BGU is? Yeah, sure. So um, for those of you who don't know, uh, BGU Zine is a bilingual feminist queer platform. And we promote a lot of things like self-love and feminism and expressing your queerness. And we also kind of uh, talk about any kind of political, social issues that are going on and try to highlight marginalized voices. So I started it in 2017, so it's been three years now, and we're on our third issue. Wow, and do you want to actually know that the meaning of BGU is super interesting, and I like how it works in both languages, if you wanted to get into that at all? Yeah, sure. So BGU stands for BGU, and you in Japanese means free. So essentially, it means be free, like be free to, you know, express yourself, um, be free to raise your voice. And uh, initially, it actually stood for Boys Girls United. And that was the first issue. But then, you know, we kind of got rid of that, considering the fact that it's still based on the binary. And we just said, screw Boys Girls United, you know, it's every gender, every gender expression um, included. So now we just stand for BGU, Be Free. And yeah, that's how (laughs) the title is now. That's amazing. So you said that BGU is a platform um, that, you know, talks about not just feminism, but you also mentioned like it's a platform for queer individuals and for like queer insights. So do you want to maybe start with defining what queer is? Because I know it's something that's quite nuanced and maybe just throwing it out there in the world can seem confusing to some listeners. Yeah, of course. And I think also in a Japanese context, um, and I live in Japan and I live in Tokyo, and I don't think a lot of people really know about the word queer yet. Um, but we've also seen like the surge of the usage of LGBTQ plus without really knowing what the Q stands for. Um, the Q can stand for questioning and also queer. And queer is a term which was originally used as a slur towards sexual and gender minorities. And then in the 1990s, the word was kind of powerfully reclaimed from its former derogatory meaning um, by sexual and gender minorities as a unifying term to describe those who are not cisgender or heterosexual. But the thing is, it's so much more than a label. It's kind of historically powered as well. And it kind of means that it actually can't be defined in a sense. Like former categories of um, sexuality and gender were easily categorizable, um, but queer kind of defies that notion of 
categorization. And so instead of trying to fit into the norms of these categories or a heterosis-normative society, queer is kind of used as a way to combat oppression in general by saying, you know, we're here, we're queer, what about it? Um, And so I guess queerness is just um, a very... Uh, all-inclusive and also very, I guess, radical um, word in general that not only refers to sexuality, but is kind of, for me, a very radical mindset that opposes all forms of oppression. That was the best definition of queer I've ever heard. (laughs) No way. But I mean, I think that, you know, everybody defines queer definitely and um, differently. Sorry. Um, and the, that's the beauty of queerness, right? That it's not this kind of um, singular, um, easily definable thing. It's this myriad of different things. And that's what's so beautiful about it. And I really, you know, kind of have to give a shout out and give so much appreciation to like all these queer people and activists who came before me so that I can have this, you know, not a definition, but a I guess, conceptualization of a very diverse conceptualization of what queerness is and what queer means. So another thing that was interesting to me that you mentioned is um, how you're currently a master's student, right? And how you're looking at queer. So what you've just defined as the Q and LGBTQ plus, um, but you're using queer in your master's studies. And do you want to talk a little bit about what queerness is in an academic sense or what queer theory is? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I I think um, within academia, queer theory and queerness is kind of, um, I guess, a very difficult thing to tackle. But so I'm not going to go so much into, I guess, like the history of queerness within an academic context. But regarding what I'm doing with my master's currently is I'm looking at how queerness is utilized within this capitalistic context. So whether it be, you know, rainbow T-shirts or if you look at uh, Rainbow Pride, Rainbow Pride in Tokyo, that is like the march and um I guess, pride parade, equivalent of a pride parade in Tokyo. Um, Most of what is out there uh, in regards to like booths are big companies, you know, these very, very, you know, prominent companies. And then there's the outskirts of, I guess, the layout, let's say, is in the center, there's these huge companies. And then on the outskirts, there's these, you know, activist circles and organizations that are really doing the work and so you see the kind of normalization normalization of queerness or utilization of queerness in a sense um everywhere whether it be with brands companies um and i'm kind of looking at how queerness is utilized and almost exploited in a sense um, in this capitalistic world. So if I go too much into it, I can probably do another five podcasts. So (laughs) I'll stop there for now. (laughs) You met, um, I have a quick question. So you talked a little bit about the history of the word uh, of queerness and how it's not, you know, strictly defined 
And I know, like, for example, in Japan, you know, the word queer or queer is still, you know, I think it was at least that word in particular was introduced quite recently or, yeah, relatively recently. Um, what is your view towards, I mean, it's a, it, it comes from English, right? So... I don't know the history of the word um, in very much detail, but um, what are your view towards it in terms of, you know, is it biased towards a certain culture or, um, you know, is it very Eurocentric or things like that? Um, I think, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement and um, just decolonization and all of these theories and ideologies about how the world is constructed on Eurocentric and white supremacist values. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, queer theory in academia is kind of the same thing, and especially in a Japanese context. Um, from what I know and from what I've researched in Japan, queer, the term kind of came in first as an academic term. So instead of, you know, how it was in the States where it used to be a derogatory term and it has this powerful history of reclamation in Japan. It started out as um, it flowed in as an academic term. So what happened was instead of people identifying themselves as queer and um, reclaiming the word, it was first introduced through primarily through academia. And so when it flows in from you know, and queer theory kind of started in the States, United States as well. So when it's a word that's supposed to be kind of deconstructing these binaries of the world, not only of gender and sexuality, um, but it's supposed to be deconstructing the notion of East versus West and, you know, these hierarchies that exist in the world. But yet, queer or queer theory, queer didon, is something that came from the United States primarily academically, um, to Japan. So when you think about that, even though queer is supposed to be this, you know, powerful term that is loaded with history, it's kind of hard to just directly translate that into a Japanese context. So I actually kind of struggle with that and think about that quite a lot, (laughs) how we can deconstruct queer and it's Eurocentricism or how we can adapt something like queer or a mindset like queer into Japan or perhaps, you know, in Japan, this mindset already exists. We just don't have a name for it. And that's why I've kind of been thinking about how we can create new meanings, create new words and essentially keep talking about these things and find our words. Perhaps it already exists. Perhaps someone already named it. I don't know. But I'm really kind of, you know, motivated to keep talking about it and keep connecting with queer people in Japan so that we can create more words and a discourse surrounding these issues because I think that's what's most important right now to create a foundation for people to express themselves um, and come out. And, you know, so all those things are on my mind right now. So that's a very good question, Erica. Thank you. Wow, that's really interesting. It's, yeah, it's interesting to hear that, you know, even if, you know, people use, people in different countries use the same word um, and and are empowered by it to, to an extent, you know, how it's introduced to a 
to a country or a culture, how that can change, um, you know, the meaning or kind of the nuances behind that term in that community. Right. Or, or it's the impact, right? Right. Because it's, I think queer in an, in a English speaking context has so much power because it used to be so derogatory because it used to be a slur. Whereas in Japan, not so much. And actually an interesting fact is, um, I think his name is Keith Vincent. Uh, the person who kind of translated um, queer texts and uh, was a scholar in Japan in the late 90s. Um, he says, he said afterwards when, um, and he kind of introduced queer, uh, or queer, you know, queer theory into Japan, but he said afterwards how he almost regretted um, introducing queer before, I guess, like the queer mindset existed among people and he said that because it lacks this history of reclamation it will never have that kind of power that queer did on um I guess activist circles and on society in the states and so he actually said something like hentai Mm -hmm. would be an equivalent something that is kind of used um in a very heteronormative almost um Mm -hmm. I guess degrading way but it can be reclaimed I don't know about hentai mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and reclaiming that, and I'm not advocating that at all. But I, I think it's an interesting perspective to say that you know maybe there's an equivalent word, or maybe it doesn't even need to be based on how you know a word that was derog- formerly derogatory was reclaimed. Maybe it can be something else that we create. So it all goes back to you know talking about it and continuing the conversation so that we can find these new words and new meanings within a Japanese discourse just gonna say yeah that that is really interesting I I think we tend to you know kind of not think about how words are introduced and how that has an impact on the way we perceive or conceptualize these words that we use so thank you Yuma for for enlightening us on that yeah I had a similar point I was just going to say that you know it's interesting that um the way we interact and the way we even feel part of these movements or feel like we relate to queerness has a lot to do with language. And I, I don't know you may, if you've noticed this, um, but as somebody who's kind of um, like, you know, you're, you as a co-founder, or as the founder and editor of BGU, you play a huge role, I assume, in the queer community here in Japan. And I'm curious to know if because of that Western um, historic root of the word queer, if those that associate in Japan to queerness are also more Western-leaning or international-leaning. Um, and it's just an assumption I have or a question I have because I I guess it is hard to associate with something or recognize yourself in something if you don't see that as part of your vernacular or part of your thinking. Right, so that's actually a really, really great point. And, um, oh, and I just want to say I do not have a huge influence on the queer scene. <laughs> uh, I think that BGU is a very, very small platform. And I'm sure it, you know, I has influenced individuals. And I've met through, I met so many people through it. But there are so many bigger um platforms and organizations that are doing so much work and Bijou is a very very small part of that um, but thank you Farine. 
Uh, having said that, I think that um, I definitely have the privilege of, you know, growing up in the states and kind of, um, you know, having also the privilege of being able to speak English. So there's so many resources out there. In English, and recently, you know, the awareness surrounding queerness has definitely surged in a Western context, context, or at least in an American or、um, English-speaking context. And so, I that's such a good point that、um, a lot of people who identify with queer are definitely English language speakers, or they have come across it、um, academically or in a book. And I guess the difference between Queer and queer is kind of that queer、uh, essentially in the states started bottom up, you know. So it was kind of in the streets, people fighting、um, and reclaiming this term, and you know the queer movement, and then it was also adapted into academia. And now people, a lot of people use LGBTQ plus and include the Q.、Uh, whereas in Japan, I think the flow is kind of top down in a sense. And I say that because you know I just said about how it's kind of flowed from an academic、um, path. And so yeah, I don't know whether queer or queer, I guess, is the right term to encapsulate. The multiplicities and the diversity within, you know, the LGBTQIA community in Japan.、Um, yeah, what was your original question? <laughs> this is this is where I go on to go into tangents and don't remember. I start not remembering what you asked me initially. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie; I don't remember what I asked either. But I something did come up to me while you were、um, just saying that. Would it be right to then assume that queer in Japan holds a level of elitism, or maybe not elitism, but privilege, in order to identify as queer?、Um, I don't know. Is that is that a right assumption? Ah,、uh, okay. Well, hmm. I don't think that. Of course, being able to speak English or、um, having access to, I guess,、um, more.、Hmm, I want to say no, and the reason is because I have met so many people who、um, identify as queer in Japan and who are Japanese, who have you know never been in the states, who have never. Um, studied English, and you know they kind of、um, draw their queerness from books and、um, their communities. And these are people、mm -hmm. who are really, really marginalized, and these are people who really don't have a voice in society. And queer kind of became their, you know,、um, way of navigating the world, and also kind of their. I don't want to say savior, but.、Um, A point to go back to, like kind of like a home, almost, if that makes sense. And so I think that presuming that privilege、um, is completely necessary or is absolutely there when、um, someone identifies as queer or identifies with 
um, queerness in Japan would be erroneous to say. But that's just my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. I think me, myself, and I can't speak for the queer community in Japan, right? So mm-hmm. um, me, myself, with my experiences and how I learned about queerness, I know that there is privilege there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everybody has the same experience. And that's what queerness is, right? Because it's like the multiplicities of identity and queer can't be easily defined. So um, I think queer means a lot of things to a lot of people in Japan and it is picking up and I think that it is also you know found out by individuals in very very different ways um and I've learned that I should not speak for a community or (laughs) not speak for other people um especially when it comes to a wide huge category do you know what I mean like you know Mm -hmm. speaking for queer Mm -hmm. women or speaking for um the Asian women in the world it's like it's such a huge category that I've kind of recently learned to not speak for huge communities like that does that make sense yeah I mean it's always hard to speak for such a diverse group of people and there's this tendency to when you do that to universalize experiences which again as you mentioned before is completely contradictory to what queerness is which is a celebration of multiplicity and you know to speak to multiple multiple big groups like that you're essentializing them um so yeah I completely get it with queerness and it's something that I've noticed um living in Canada and the UK it is still something I have seen is quite I would say, despite it coming from a Western context, and I don't live in the U.S., so maybe it is much different in the U.S., but at least in Canada and the U.K., in the mainstream media, I still don't find queer to be as accessible or as understood. Do you think that that is something that's different in Japan or similar? Like how, you know, I think queer for people who identify as queer or a part of that community might be more understood but what is it like for wider audiences and how is that engagement how is that engagement in regards to I guess you're asking like um like having people understand or kind of spreading that information yeah so like for example I was having dinner with my family maybe a couple of weeks ago um and something about I I think my mom's hot story about someone saying like that they were queer and my mom was like, oh, I didn't know, you know, that she liked girls. And I kind of sit there and go, oh, well, you know, being queer isn't the same as being gay mom. And she was like, oh, I thought it was just like a synonym. Like she was like, I just thought it was literally a synonym of being gay. Um, and, you know, having these like people who might not necessarily be within that feminist community or within the queer or LGBTQ community or a more progressive community understanding what queer actually means right no that's such a good point like how um a lot of people perceive it as synonymous to being you know homosexual um and actually I recently saw an amazing post by um I think I don't know her name but her account is shrimp tea do you do you two know her 
we follow her too. I love her art. Right. Yeah. She's amazing. Um, and she talks about in a post. Um, wait. Hold on. Let me see if I can pull it up because I don't want to misquote her or. Oh, so it's this post that says queer isn't just a catch-all term. Queer is an intentional, inclusive, radical identifier, and she kind of talks about how、um, you know individuals can choose the terms that best fit them, and she says that you know this term queer is really loaded, and it's one of those words that holds so much historical trauma and also power that choosing to use it or reclaim it as a label should be a conscious choice, and.、Um, She says, and this is a direct quote: "I see a lot of confusion around the term and a tendency to use it to describe pretty much everything besides heterosexuality. Everyone has different language that makes them feel supported, but for me, the term queer is not only an identifier but also a practice. It's about being intentional, radical, and inclusive in the ways that we love, share, we love, share sex, and exist in the world." It's a slur, so it forces me to recognize my privilege within the community and stand in solidarity with those who have less. It's about working together towards increased visibility, acceptance, and liberation. If this resonates with you, great. If not, that's cool too. That's the wonderful part of identities: we get to own them and use them in ways that fit our beliefs. I'm available. Oh, okay. And then the rest is about something different. <laughs> But I, this really, really, truly, truly, I can't tell you how much this resonated with me.、Um, You know, I have a lot of privilege in the queer community as a cis woman, and、um, I think that you know, queer is such a powerful term in the sense that it can be catch all、um, in like the way that it's being utilized, but I think it should be this kind of as you know she says. An intentional,、um, radical kind of、um, defiance towards heteronormative, cisnormative society.、Um, so and yeah, like I, I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand because it's so vague and ambiguous. But that's also the power in it, and I really believe how, you know, it's. Undefinability actually leads to power. It says you can't define us. We are not this singular, you know, easily categorizable community. We are diverse. We need different things. We, you know, some of us value different things, and I, yeah. So I think it's just a very powerful, intentional term. And yeah, please check out Shrimp Teeth because that post is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at the post right now. Actually,、um, the other thing that she mentions in this post that I want to just go back to for a second、um, is sorry, the text is so small and I have bad eyesight. Just give me a second.、Um, all right, so she goes. Everyone has different language that makes them feel supported, but for me, the term queer is not only an identifier but also a practice. Um, I really liked that because I know we kind of.、Oh, I'm so sorry, I just dropped my mic. <laughs>、um, because I know we kind of, you know, talked about it and skirted around it, but this idea of queer. 
being both practice and identity. Um, and what what does that look like? Like, what does living a queer life look like? You know, it's it's the rejection of um, categories and it's the rejection of being put into boxes. But what does that really mean? And I know it's different for everyone. So I wanted to know, you, if you wanted to talk a little bit about how you incorporate that into your practice. So that's a more personal question. Let's right. speaking to the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, I guess, parallels to, or what I found is, like, there's a difference between just kind of using it as an identifier and um, kind of conceptualizing it as a practice for me in the sense that instead of just, you know, identifying as a queer person I think that I am not only like advocating my queerness and putting it out into the world but it's standing up for others in my community like I will always be anti-transphobia I will always be you know anti-homophobia like and it's not just about not being homophobic or not being um, transphobic it's being anti and that's kind of borrowing from you know this movement that's going on with the Black Lives Matter and saying it's not enough to just not be racist you have to be anti-racist you have to actively you know deconstruct the um, not only the um, I guess white supremacist and racist notions within yourself that you've been ingrained to believe sometimes unconsciously, but going out there and fighting those cases of white supremacy and racism that exist in the world. And I think there's definitely parallels to that and um, queerness where it's not only identifying yourself and just kind of um, calling yourself queer. I think it's really going out there and fighting and, um, Adam Eli, who is a great writer and amazing activist based in New York. So they recently came up out with um, their first book called The New Queer Conscience. And it says queer people anywhere are responsible for queer people everywhere. And I this really, really kind of um, is how I try to navigate the world. I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to embody and it's a difficult thing to put into practice. But, um, you know, when we say queer community, we're kind of using it as an umbrella term a lot of the times to encapsulate all of these different identities like lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, asexual, and beyond, obviously. And all of those experiences are so different and often there's contention and um, a lack of acceptance even within those communities. So there might be, you know, a gay person who doesn't accept trans people. And for me, that I don't want you in my queer community. Like, that is not queerness to me. And for me, like, actively calling that out and saying that, you know, if you're not inclusive, you're not queer. And I, I want to be really adamant about that because um, I think, you know, a lot of people just kind of see, like, you know, the LGBTIA community, I guess, as um, this whole, like, conglomeration 
of like huge chunk of people and they don't recognize the diversity and multiplicities at the really, really diverse needs and struggles and experiences of this huge population. Um, and, you know, as I said before, within that, there's transphobia and sometimes even homophobia. And um, there's a reluctance to accept, for example, intersex people or people who don't quote unquote pass. Um, and so I think for me, like queerness also means that or how I, I guess, think that I put into practice is really just having this mindset of inclusivity and no queer gets left behind in a sense <laughs> sorry I rambled <laughs> no I love that and I love that quote I wanted to kind of go back in time a little bit I remember when I met you in 2017 and the first um uh episode is not the right word my brain is not functioning you do not <laughs> first issue sorry. first issue of BGU came out uh, you actually came and spoke to our class um, and I think Erica and I were both in that class when you came and spoke. But at that time, what I remember was that BGU had a quite like feminist core and quite a feminist identity. And obviously over the years, you know, now it's 2020, there's a much stronger queer identity um, to both BGU, but also your personal identity. How has that shift evolved and how, you know, did that personal progression happen for you? How did you go from from feminism to really embracing queerness? Um, I think I still identify as, you know, a queer feminist. And that's contentious to some. But um, yeah, I definitely identify as a queer feminist. And as I said in the very beginning of the interview, I think that Bijou is a queer feminist zine, primarily. Um, and... I think in the beginning when I started BGU in 2017, I was so angry at the world in terms of um, how heteronormative it was. And heteronormativity also perpetuates these notions of the gender binary, which then kind of perpetuates the idea that women need to do this, men need to do this. And it's also based on a binary. So when you kind of look back at that, it's this progression of like the rejection of social norms in terms of how it's set up with patriarchy and heteronormativity. And then I think at that time I was very interested and also, um, I guess, angered by everything that was going on around me and what kind of categories were um, just kind of forced upon me and what kind of life I was supposed to have because I was a woman in Japan. And so in the beginning, it was just, you know, feminism. And then it became intersectional feminism when I realized all of these authors I was reading was were just white, wealthy, you know, women um, who had a prominent voice. And then I started reading, you know, Angela Davis and Roxane Gay, and it became intersectional feminism. And then I started, um, and all a lot of these authors are also identify as either lesbian or queer or part of the queer community. And so when I started reading their works, um, I came across someone like Judith Butler, and I also came across all of these resources talking about queerness. And I think this was maybe 2018, beginning of, or 
um, end of throughout that year anyways. And um, so I just realized how queerness is this really powerful um, thing. And it's also a mindset and a practice and in the same way that feminism is. And so now it's kind of a mixture of the two. And Bijou really, really reflects that. And that's what I love so much about a zine because it's this, and I think it's, you know, there's parallels and similarities to a podcast, but it's this self-produced, um, unfiltered way of expressing yourself and interacting with others and putting that out into the world. And so at each time I come across different things and each time I come across different people who eventually even join ZU, uh, BGU or contribute to BGU, it's another progression within me and within the zine. And I think also it kind of connects to how um, I reflect on myself and my privilege. And being editor-in-chief also means that I get to be called out. I get to be held responsible of what I put out into the world. And that's what I that's why I learned so much through um, BGU. And I, I, I guess you can see how my beliefs and ideologies have kind of changed since the first time we met um, in the classroom when I think I was probably first year out of university. Wow, 2017 feels like such a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I think I first met you, Yume. I wasn't in that class, but... Um, I went to the, there was a, um, not a protest, but um, kind of a, you know, a collection of speeches um, held at Shinjuku for the Me Too movement, well, in relation to that. And I remember I saw you speak and um, I went up to you and then you gave me the, the zine and I thought it was the coolest thing and yeah oh my gosh I'm literally I'm not kidding you right now I'm going to cry like (laughs) it's just you know it's just thinking about how far I've come and how far BGU has come and how far you know Erica you're doing your own podcast now Farine you too and I think I'm surrounded by such beautiful, badass, queer, feminist people, and I'm so fucking lucky. <laughs> um, and it just brings joy and tears to my eyes, but it also makes me feel like because there's so many people that I love and so many people in the world who, you know, need a platform, need to be heard, like, there's so much more work to do, you know? So it's, like, a bittersweet feeling because when we did that um, rally for Me Too um, in 2017, it was to um, call out this politician who uh, sexually harassed this woman, and, you know, not a lot has changed. I mean, of course there's been progress in terms of awareness, and you see all of these Instagram accounts about politics and social issues and I'm so so happy because that did not you know exist back in 2017 when BGU started and so on one hand I'm so excited for what's to come and you know on the other hand I'm just like there's so much more that I need to do that we can do and you know we're all on our own journeys and yeah it's exciting and also um angering 
I guess, <laughs> and frustrating. But, you know, we got to turn that into creative fuel to change the world, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, and I just want to, I think that's a really strong way to end it because I also feel so grateful to be surrounded by so many as you said, fucking amazing people who are constantly pushing me to grow and learn. Um, like, you know, you yourself, you may have called me out time after time on a post. Because, hey, have you just thought about your wording here? And I'll be like, no. And then you know, have a really productive discussion about like why, hey, maybe that wasn't the best wording. We're like, eh, that's a little bit problematic. And it forces you to grow and learn. And like, my hope is that three years from now, I will be in a different position than I am today. And I will be, you know, smarter um, and better and all of those things. And I can like look up to you as a little role model. Um, but yeah, I just thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for everything that you do. Like all of your hard work doesn't go unnoticed. Um, your content, I think is always amazing. And I think like, your your insights and your way of looking at the world are really interesting um and I don't know to me especially it like I something that I appreciate is that and it's something I worry about a lot and this is going to be a bit of a tangent is like because I'm not Japanese I often feel it's not my place to be involved in some discussions about Japanese feminism um like you know there's some things I can I can talk about and there's some things that it's like it's just not my place um, and because I have that fear of bringing in like a Eurocentric mindset and I love that even though you champion queerness, you're so aware of the nuances that come with that and the cultural sensitivity, because I mean, you are obviously Japanese, but I, I don't know, it gives me hope that like there's a multiplicity and there's going to be like a critical use of these types of concepts. And, um, I don't know if I'm just going on a tangent here. No, that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, like, I totally get what you're saying. Um, and like, I just got chills from what you're talking about now. So like, <laughs> so that means it's good. And it's totally contributing to the conversation. Um, <laughs> I just hope, you know, yeah, agreed. Like three years later, I hope we're all in a better world. And we help to like make that the world a better place as cheesy as that sounds um and yeah I I just hope like as I said before like there are so many amazing people not only around me but have like who have like influenced me and who have come before me who are doing so much you know for like the rights of people who are marginalized and to combat oppression and discrimination. And like, I want to be even a small part of that. And I think like, you know, we're doing our job um, and like trying to learn and grow and reflect and admit our mistakes and keep an open, open conversation going. And that's why like this podcast is also so great, right? Because we're keeping an open dialogue. Like we're trying to not only like talk about ourselves and like how we view the world but keep like a very critical and um I guess like honest and transparent um dialogue about like what we're talking about with each other so honestly I am so happy I was like so ecstatic 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 like I'm so 
happy that like I can't talk anymore that that happens to me sometimes <laughs> like I was getting chills and like I have like tears like this is so amazing and I hope we can do this again, again yeah for sure oh yeah speaking of um for anyone listening so we would we did this podcast this episode in English and I think you might we were talking about doing one in Japanese as well just to create you know it's talk about these just um these issues and discuss have this discussion in Japanese for um you know people who feel more comfortable with that language um and I think it's you know of course like we've talked about there's different implications and nuances that come with different languages and wording so it'll be interesting to talk about that as well if you're down yeah yeah I'm so excited to do that. And um, for like just all the listeners and everybody who um, reads BGU or like interacts with me, like just I am always waiting for honest opinions. So if you thought what I said was fucked up today, let's talk. Like I'm so open um, to just keep the conversation going and not let it stop here as a podcast. So yeah. Follow BGU, write for BGU, talk to me, talk to the BGU members. Um, and yeah, like, let's fucking do this again because <laughs> this is really fun. <laughs> find you and where can they find uh, BGU? Like, do you want to just plug all of the places they can find you? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can follow BGU on Instagram at b.g.u.befree. And the website is www.bgubfree.org. Um, and we also have Facebook and Twitter, which is linked to the Instagram or uh, it's a link to the website as well. So you can follow us there and whoever wants to contribute, whoever wants to have an open conversation about these issues that I either talked about today or that's on any of our platforms, like, please, please feel free to contact us. BGU is an open platform. So, yeah, that's about it. That's amazing. Um, want to end with one quick question for you, Yume. And you might not have an answer, but can you give listeners maybe a timeline on when issue number four of BGU is coming? <gasps> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we still have about maybe 1,000 copies of BGU 3, which we haven't been able to pass out because of, you know, corona and the pandemic. Um, So, BGU 4 is not coming for, I would say, like, until next year. But whoever wants to write for it, whoever wants to, you know, contribute art or photography is welcome. We are always looking for new submissions. So... (laughs) Please be on the lookout for um, us having our event for BGU 3. And then let's talk about BGU 4. <laughs> Sometimes I forget that COVID has messed everything. But yeah, thank you again so much for coming on this show. Thank you so much, Yume. I've been wanting to, like, we've been wanting to do this forever. So it's so nice to have you on finally. 
Thank you, too. It was my pleasure. It was so much fun. I hope we can do this again. Thank you. And for all the listeners, if you want to follow Super Smash Host, you can follow us on Instagram at Super Smash Host Podcast. You can find our website at www.supersmashhostmedia.com. And yeah, thank you all for listening. Make sure to subscribe and um, leave a review. Thanks. <laughs>